0: approach worship next week. I was hunting for what to do this week. And so what I wanted to do is focus on grace. And so Lenny found us some great songs to sing about grace. But I went with grace this week because grace leads into worship. It does that just logically, but it also does that in our vision statement as Northgate Church. So if you go on our website or you look, you'll see that the vision of Northgate Church is summarized in four words, and we try to ascribe arrows to those words so that we can remember them better. So grace is a downward arrow, reminding us that we receive grace from God. Worship is an upward arrow saying our response to his gift of grace is to worship him. Then we have arrows coming in for community and arrows going out for mission. So as we look to our Savior and our God and our Creator, we, we see that He has given us so many gifts. So many gifts have come down from Him to us, from the sunshine this morning to ultimately our salvation that we experience in Him. Those are gifts of His grace into our life. And so as we appreciate those gifts, we respond in worship, which we'll talk about next week. And we'll see throughout the time that it should draw us together in community. That's one of the reasons that with this worship booklet, we're encouraging you to consider engaging in the topic of worship in community. Because worship isn't the end goal. We want to worship together, but as we're worshiping together, that should unite us in community, shouldn't it? We should be the family of God together. That's not the end goal either, really. The end goal isn't to be a country club where we're all one big click in the world. Our central goal that it all leads us to grace, worship, community, and mission, so that we go out of this place, out into the world with a message of God's grace to share with other people, right? But if you're interested in connecting in community, maybe it's a new year, and a New Year's resolution, reach out to myself or to Scott um, this week. We'd love to help you connect with a group. There are groups that are going to start meeting next Sunday at 9.30 downstairs, but if you're here, it could be because 9.30 worship service fits your schedule. And if that's true, then maybe a life group could work for you. Maybe you could connect um, in one of those that meets in homes. And so if you're interested in any of those, please reach out to the church this week and we can help you get connected. But... Um, As we're looking at grace, so I've got a topic uh, of grace that I want to focus on. I'm confident it's in God's word. I just got to pick which of these verses in the Bible on grace do I want to preach this morning. And so I'm going through my Bible looking and saying like, which Bible verse on grace should we focus on this morning? There are so many of them. I'm reading in Titus chapter 2. I'm reading along and I see in God's word, it says these words, declare these things. So that catches my attention. Whenever I see in the Bible where it says, declare these things. So I thought, oh, I should look back and see what I'm being told to declare. Because the Apostle Paul wrote Titus. This is a letter that he wrote to his friend Titus, who was a pastor. So this is the Apostle Paul saying, this is what you should preach, Titus. So I was like, okay, if it's good enough for Titus, it's good enough for us. So I went back and saw, what is it that Paul is telling Titus to declare? And that's what we're going to read this morning. It's Titus chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 11 and read to verse 15. We have it on the screens for you as I read, but it's in your pew Bibles, it's on your phones. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So Paul is saying, Titus, listen, declare these things. Declare to the people that the grace of God has appeared. It has appeared. So we'll start there. we got to start with a definition of grace. So you probably all have a concept of what grace is. We're not talking about the prayer before dinner. We're talking about grace. We're talking about what Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines this way. Unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. So a definition like that requires that you look up a whole bunch of other words in the dictionary. So it's accurate and helpful But sometimes it's helpful to get a simpler definition. So here's a good one. God's favor to the unworthy. That's shorter and has less confusing words in it. God's favor for the unworthy. Some people have chosen to remember definition of grace by remembering each of the letters of grace. And so you have G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. And so that's a little trick that you can learn along the way to try to remember, what is grace? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. So I received the riches of God in my life, not because of anything I've done, but because of Christ's expense, because of what Christ has done. But if you caught me in the foyer and you said, what does grace mean again? I would probably say something like, well, it's just God giving me what I don't deserve. It's God giving me what I don't deserve. So all these things in my life, including my salvation and the car I drive and the bed I sleep in, are God giving me things that I don't deserve. Those are all, it's all a picture of his grace. The grace of God is, we emphasize it so much, and it's where we start because it is what differentiates Christianity from all the other religions in the world. There's a a great story that Uh, Philip Yancey talks about in his book What's So Amazing About Grace which is a book that everyone should read so you can if you're a reader What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey on page 45 he tells this story he writes during a British conference on comparative religions experts from around the world debated if any belief was unique to the Christian faith they began eliminating possibilities incarnation Other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked, and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, Oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. So grace is something we emphasize because it is the one thing that differentiates Christianity from all of the other pathways that people make available. I've heard Christianity described, um, and I've used this illustration before, as a, so there's a mountain, and at the top of the mountain is God. And so we want to get to God, and so we have to travel up a pathway to get to God. So this is a really popular illustration today to talk about how do all of the religions of the world all fit together. So postmodern, post-truth people love this illustration, right? So God's at the top. I have a pathway to God. It's my pathway, and I can get to God. But it explains how all the other religions of the world work. So the, the Buddhists have a pathway to God. The Muslims have a pathway to God. Your spiritual friends have a pathway to God. Our friends who say, you know what, if I just do enough good things, I think God will let me into heaven. Okay, that's another pathway to God, different from Christianity's. And so we say, like, okay, look at this mountain. Everyone's trying to get to God, and all these paths get to God, and they all lead there, but just along different ways. And that sounds really good to postmodern ears. But Christianity, again, is differentiated from that whole picture in this way. God descended from the top of the mountain and came down and stands next to you at the base of the mountain. You stand there looking at the mountain saying, like, I'm not sure which path to go. Even if I choose this path, it's really hard to get to God. And Jesus is standing next to you and he says, hey, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Follow me. You say, yeah, well, I need to do something, God. I need to work my way to you. And Jesus is like, no, you've missed it. I came to you. The grace of God has appeared. He came down from the top of the mountain and he stands next to you and he says, just follow me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's not a path you have to go. There's not a a series of obstacles that you have to overcome to get to me. I came to you. And that is what makes grace so special and so different and so unique to the Christian message. We simply look at this moment whenever the grace of God appeared to us 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, which we just celebrated when the grace of God appeared. So if you're following with Paul's logic as he writes the letter to Timothy then you're going to work your way through verses 12 to 13 and eventually get to 14. But what I'm going to do is just skip to verse 14. Because the way that Paul writes his sentence, we're going to get to 12 and 13 but when he gets to verse 14 he starts to elaborate on Jesus Christ the grace of God that appeared. And so if you look at verse 14 it says this, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous For good works. So he begins to describe this moment when when the grace of God appeared, when Jesus appeared um, on earth. And it says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem us from all lawlessness. That's why Jesus gave himself. So to make that sort of resonate and land with us, we have to sort of think it through. Okay, so to redeem us from lawlessness. Okay, lawlessness, that means like to break the law, to not have law in my life. It means I live my life irregardless of the law. I just do what I want to do. So, God's law, are we living lawless lives? Well, God's law is, is really long. It takes up lots of pages in the Bible, but to summarize it, we look at the Ten Commandments, right? So, have you lived a lawless life? Have you lived in lawlessness? Well, have you ever uh, lied? Have you ever uh, coveted something? So it's not hard to walk people through God's law and say, like, probably you've broken God's law. So if you can admit that you've broken God's law, then then theoretically, if you break the law, you go to jail, right? And I know that's oversimplification of the process, but if you break the law, you go to jail. And so when it says that we have been redeemed from all lawlessness, the imagery that Paul is creating here is he's saying, like, listen, you are in bondage. You are behind bars. You have lived a life of lawlessness. And what Jesus did when he gave himself up for you is he set you free from your bondage. He opened those doors, and you have been set free from your prison. And you land in that prison because you were lawless. And that is what he's saying. Jesus gave himself up for us. He said, I'll take your prison sentence. I'll take your punishment, and you can go free. You didn't earn it. It was a free gift that God gave you, his unmerited favor. But once you walk out of that prison and you're on the street and life lies before you, what do you have going for you? So two times in the last two weeks, Northgate Church has been contacted by men who had just gotten out of prison. So I talked with both of these men over the last two weeks who had just gotten out of prison and they told their story and um, I don't think I had really paused and appreciated until the last two weeks how difficult it is when you first get out of prison. So you're so grateful for your freedom. You're very happy to not have to be in prison. But you have just been released from prison and now here before you lies your freedom and you still have a real uphill battle, don't you? Because now you've got to figure out a vocation, and you've got to figure out finances, and you've got to deal with your reputation. And it's an uphill battle, and so these two gentlemen, we tried to help in the best way we could, given the situations involved, but, but what it did, it helped me see that to be redeemed from lawlessness is just step one. To be forgiven of your sins and set free is just step one. That's why Paul says there's, he, he gave up himself up to us to redeem us from, the law, from our lawlessness, and then once you are redeemed, then you are purified, and you belong to God. That's why he says that he has redeemed for us for all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So you're set free from prison, and then up pulls the Cadillac, and it is the king of the universe. And he says, hop in. I got a job lined up for you. I got a house lined up for you. You can wear my robe. You can wear my ring. You can have all my authority. You can have all my wealth. It's all my power is at your possession. Because you are my possession. And that is what our salvation is. That's why we sing about amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Because not only have we been set free from our sin, that we have been purified. Our reputation is now the people that are pure. And now we live into this reputation and we live according to the vocation that he gives us in his kingdom. It's grace. It's amazing grace. And grace comes first. That grace should motivate us to live for him, to be zealous for good works. His grace. Paul doesn't want us to be motivated to do good works, to try and earn God's favor, does he? Because you can't earn God's favor. He wants us to be motivated for our good works out of gratitude for the freedom we experience, the identity that we live in, and all the power that he's been given to us through his Holy Spirit. As we look to grace in verses 12 to 13 now, so we've looked at verse 11 and verse 14, so now we start to look at grace. And we're still in verse 11, actually. We see that the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all people. If you look at verses 11 to 14 in the Greek, because it was originally written in the Greek language, verses 11 to 14 is one long, run-on sentence. And, you know, back in elementary school, you learned about how sentences are put together. You have to have subjects and verbs and objects and all those things. To summarize it for us, what he is, Paul has written here is a really complicated sentence, but to simplify it, grace is the subject of this long sentence. And grace does a number of things. Grace brings... Grace trains and grace waits. And so that's what we're going to look at. First, we're going to see that it brings salvation. Then we're going to see that it trains us to renounce a certain way of living and live a different way. And then thirdly, we wait for our blessed hope. But bringing first, what does grace bring us? It brings salvation for all people. So when God's grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ... When he appeared to us 2,000 years ago, he brought with him salvation for all people. When I was reading that this week, thinking about it, it it made me think of um, things we bring. Things we bring. So we've all been to parties. And just coming off of Christmas, maybe you went to a Christmas party. But certainly we've all been to parties before. And some of us have been to parties where with the invitation to the party comes the offer to bring something. So bring something with you when you come. And so let's imagine a scenario where you have just the best cookies and you're famous for your cookies. If your chocolate chip cookies make it to a party, everybody wants them because you have the best cookies. So you show up to that party, and with you, you bring that plate of cookies. And you, and you hand it to your guest or your host. You go, and you're mixing in the party. You're making small talk. You're saying to someone, what did you bring? And they say, oh, I brought the buffalo chicken dip. You say, oh, that sounds so delicious. And they say, what did you bring? And I said, oh, I brought my chocolate chip cookies. And your friend says, oh, wow, I love your chocolate chip cookies. I didn't see them out. I didn't see them set out on the table. And you say, oh, I'll go check because I brought those cookies and I want people to enjoy those cookies. So you go and look at the whole spread of food and it's all good food, but you don't see your cookies there. So you go into the kitchen and you're looking around for where the plate of cookies is that you brought. Because you brought it because you wanted it to be set out for people. And you find it in the kitchen, maybe underneath a towel, and you're like, oh my goodness, the host forgot to set out my cookies. So here's how the illustration works. The grace of God appeared. Jesus came and he brought with him salvation. And sometimes... We might forget to set that out. Jesus brought it. but We may not set it out. I mean, we may set out the beauty of his creation. And we may set out oh, the incredible blessing I have of my health. And We may set out on the smorgasbord, I am so grateful that God has given me this country to live in. Those are all really good things. You know what sometimes people do? They set out and they say, Jesus came. The grace of God did appear. And you know what Jesus brought with him? A beautiful example for how to live a selfless life. You know what Jesus gives me? He gives me just some great teachings to live by. Jesus brings all those things. He brings lots of good things. But he came bringing salvation. And if we don't set that out, then the very best thing he brought hasn't been set out for people to enjoy and to digest, to trust in, to let that change their life. Because fundamentally, that's what he brought when he appeared, was salvation for all people. But sometimes we don't set it out. He brought it. Let's not forget to set it out and invite others to partake in it. He brings salvation for all people. And then the grace of God trains us it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So God's grace is training us in two ways. It's training us to renounce some things, and it's training us to live a certain way. This is no different than training any other training that you might go into. now. Different translations of the Bible, right? They take that Greek language and they translate it into English in different ways. So some translations, instead of the word train, they use the word uh, um, teach or instruct, which is fine, it's just not my preference because I think teach and instruct sounds academic. It sounds like the grace of God is teaching you like a teacher in your classroom teaches you and you sit there and listen. And that's not the sense that Paul is trying to communicate. Paul is trying to communicate training, You need to, the grace of God is training you. Like Mickey trained Rocky. Like that's the image. If you need imagery, it's not the teacher in the classroom. It's Mickey with Rocky. Okay, so the grace of God is Mickey and you're Rocky. The grace of God is Mr. Miyagi. and You're the karate kid. The grace of God is Yoda and you're Luke Skywalker. I could, you know, I don't know which one you need for it to land, but there's one for each of you. The grace of God is training us. So as you think of those training montage scenes, that's what the grace of God is doing. It is training you to stop doing this and start doing this. So if you've ever been in training, you know that, right? i got to cut out sweets. i got to stop staying up so late. I need to start doing other things. I need to start exercising. I need to start eating healthy, right? That's what you do when you go through training. And so Paul says this is what you need to stop. You need to stop ungodliness. And you need to stop your worldly passions. I think it might be helpful to give a little more specifics on that. So, I mean, I could make a long list of all the things we should stop doing. All if I started listing off all the sins that we could commit, it would you would check out real quick. But let me just give you a short list. Stop selfishness. Stop being so proud. Stop the deceit, lust, sexual immorality, gossip, tearing people down with your words. Outbursts of anger, drunkenness, envy, jealousy. And you get the picture. We could go on and on like that. The grace of God trains us to stop those things. Now, how does the grace of God train me to stop my selfishness? Well, I think what the grace of God does, if you'll meditate on the grace of God, then this is what you'll start to think about. You'll start to think, why do I need to be selfish? When I think about God's grace, I realize Everything in my life is a gift from God that I don't deserve. If it's all a free gift from God, then then why am I being selfish with it? Why would I be selfish with it? And you think, well, I deserve. You don't deserve any of the things you have. Do you deserve a mattress to sleep on tonight more than someone on the other side of the world deserves it? Do you deserve the heat that you have in your house you deserve that, right? And the person on the other side of the world who was born into a different context than you were born into? We don't deserve any of the things we get. Everything that we have in our life is a gift from God, and so if I have it as a free gift from God, why would I be selfish with it? Pride. The grace of God trains us not to be proud. I didn't earn any of this, so why am I proud about all the things in my life? I didn't actually like, earn this favor I have with God. This is a gift from God, so... I should be humble. Why are, why are you looking at pornography? Why do you have that sexual immorality in your life? Why are you having sex outside of marriage? Well, a good Christian would say, well, God forgives me for those things. He certainly does. And his grace washes over you every time. But why would we abuse God's grace? God's grace should train us to not want to abuse his grace. Why are you so jealous? Look at God's grace. He loves you so much. He left heaven and came to earth because you are his prized possession. He would move heaven and earth for you. He loves you so much. So whatever you're seeking for in that person, you're so jealous over that person, you might need to, what you're seeking for from that person, you might need to find in God because he loves you and he sees you and he values you. See, the grace of God trains us to stop certain things. It is the grace, his grace that trains us. His grace trains us to do good things, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. As I meditate on God's grace, it motivates me to love others and extend God's grace to others. I remember all the times that that God's been faithful to me and I have been unfaithful to him. And so as I meditate on his grace, I begin to think, wow, God's been faithful to me when I've been so unfaithful to him. I want to extend his faithfulness to others. I know they've been unfaithful to me but I I want to live a life like God and I want to be faithful to them even when they're unfaithful to me. I look at God and I see how generous he is, all the good gifts he's given to me, and I say to myself, you know what I want to do? I want his grace to train me. I want to be a generous person too. I want to be someone who just gives things away. I don't want to be a selfish person. I want to be a generous person. It is his grace that trains us to live that way. His grace trains us. Training happens daily, doesn't it? you're going to train, you're going to do it daily. And so it's the same way with God's grace. Let God's grace train you every day. Find a rhythm in which you can meditate on his grace every day and let that train you. God has other attributes other than grace. He has all kinds of attributes we could list off. But one of them is judgment, isn't it? God is a judge. That's who he is also. And so it's true that God will judge unrighteousness. But if you'll notice the way that Paul writes it to Timothy, it is not God's judgment that trains us. So let's just remind ourselves, John 3, 16, most famous verse in the world probably, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The next verse, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In the same way, God does not train us with His judgment. He trains us with His grace. He sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And He is training you, not with His judgment, but with His grace. We shouldn't live lives of fear, fear of the judgment of God, I'm being trained by judgment, I'm afraid of what He's going to do, I'm trained by judgment. That is not what Paul is telling Titus to declare. He tell them to declare to the people that it is God's grace that trains them. I just started coaching Henry's um, basketball team. So it's the third and fourth grade boys. It's in-house, it's not travel league. So I've got third and fourth grade boys, many of them have never played basketball on a team before. Uh, and, and so it's fun. I'm a little intimidated myself because I haven't coached basketball since I was a teenager. When I was in, like, I don't know, 8th or ninth grade, I actually coached a team of 3rd and 4th grade boys. So I'm, I'm coming home to my first love. And uh, I go into my first practice with the boys la- two Saturdays ago, and I've got some plays written down, you know, that we're going to go over. And then an hour into practice, I'm like, OK, so we probably won't run plays. <laughs> so I've had two practices now. I'm just figuring it out. I've decided I am their Phil Jackson, and they are my Michael Jordans. I will train them. I will train them. And so I learned, it's been a long time, since my teenage years, since I was training in basketball, we don't call them suicides anymore. They're line drills. So we did the line drills, uh, and I'm training them. I'm blowing the whistle, touch the line. They're running back, run harder, training them. Some things they need to stop doing. So they need to stop looking down when they dribble all the time. You've got to stop that. Some things they need to start doing. They need to start thinking of their teammates. They need to start setting screens and picks for their teammates so they can get open, right? So there's things they need to start doing, some things they need to stop doing. I'm training them. But I'm training them, hopefully, I hope, in grace. And here's what I mean by that. It doesn't mean there's not consequences, right? It doesn't mean they're not corrected doesn't mean that sometimes they might have to get pulled out of the game. It means this. I hope those kids on the team know that I love them regardless of how they perform. I love them whether or not they can look up when they dribble or if they can't look up when they dribble. They are a valuable part of my team regardless of how they perform. That's how I want to train them. There might be other coaches around who want to train them with with judgment, who want to just, you know, really drill something into them and really prize the best ones and ignore the other ones. But, But that's not how a good coach trains, is it? He lets those players on his teams know, no matter what happens out there, you are valuable to me, and I love you. God's grace trains us. We should let God's grace affect us as it flows out from us to train others. It, the 13, verse 13 gives us waiting. So God's grace brings salvation, it trains us, and then it is waiting. And so through grace, it causes us to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God's grace first appeared 2,000 years ago when Jesus arrived the first time. We are eagerly awaiting Jesus' return. Our blessed hope, it says, when he will reappear, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You can hear it in the way Paul writes it to Titus. He is genuinely excited, a blessed hope, at the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. As we dwell on the grace of God, it should motivate in us a desire for Jesus to return. So I will be vulnerable with you. I, I have already in uh, sermons prior on this little detail of my life, I struggle to eagerly anticipate the return of Jesus. So this one is hard for me. This one doesn't really land for me. And and here's why I think, as I sort of introspectively I look at myself, I think it's because I've got a pretty good thing going. And I don't know that I want Jesus to interrupt it just yet. So I've got health, and I've got wealth, and I've got comforts, and I have a great family, and I have a great job, and I have great friends. I have so many great things going for me. It's hard for me to genuinely eagerly await the return of Jesus. I think it's hard for any of us who live in the West, who live with comforts and wealth and access to health care, I think it's hard for us to genuinely long for Jesus' return. But if I'm living in a war-torn country and I've watched my loved ones suffer injustices, I think it's easier to long for Christ's return. If I don't have access to health care, I think it's easier to long for Christ's return. If I were more familiar with death and disease, if I were a prisoner to someone who was sexually trafficking me, I think it would be easier to long for Christ's return. I've shared this before. The times in which my heart has cried out for Christ to return are the moments in which I'm in children's hospital and I'm walking the hallway and I look in and I see children with cancer. And it is in those moments that my heart cries out, oh, come Lord Jesus, come right now. I don't care about whatever else I have planned for this life. Come right now and restore this world. Bring restoration so as I sort of introspectively look and I'm like why am I not eagerly anticipating Christ's return well I sort of got to deal with the fact that it's probably because I'm a pretty self obsessed person but in those moments where I can shift my attention onto the suffering of others then truly my heart does cry out oh come Lord Jesus you are our blessed hope you are our only hope to restore this world And that's what the grace of God should cause us to do. And then in verse 15, it says, Declare these things. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So we are to declare that God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That list all starts with grace. Next week, we'll look at worship together and we'll see how worship is a natural response to the grace of God that we've received. But for this week, we have to leave here with questions like this Have you experienced His grace? Has the grace of God appeared to you? So it's not a historical moment of grace 2,000 years ago. The question becomes, have you experienced the grace of God in your heart, in your life, in your conscience? Have you received his salvation? Have you received the gift of his grace? And if you have, then we ask the next question. Okay, then are you in training? Are you training with God's grace? Or are you training with God's judgment? Because that's not a good trainer. Are you training in God's grace? Are there things in your life that you would like to stop? And are you trying with God's help as his grace as your trainer to stop those things? Are there things in your life that you're trying to start? God's grace training you in some of these ways. Where does some grace need to appear in your life? Who could you be giving some grace to in your life? And are you waiting? Are you eagerly waiting his return? Are you willing to declare these things? That's what Paul says. He says, declare these things. Now, certainly that's to Titus, but I'm not going to let you off the hook. You ought to be declaring these things as well. Who could you share with this week? Who could you speak words of grace to? Because I guarantee there's someone in your life today that needs to hear the words that God loves them, regardless of their performance that God loves them regardless of what they have done. God loves you. There's probably someone in your life who needs to know that you're doing your best to love them that way too. On Monday we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. King faced many obstacles while on his mission for equality. He was arrested over 20 times for protesting. He was the object of several violent attacks, both to his person and his property. He received threatening phone calls. His home was bombed and set on fire. He was even stabbed. Meanwhile, he watched as black people in America were treated like garbage, injustices that they had to endure. And yet King chose to declare the grace of God when he famously said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. So for all the injustices that King set to, ju- to seek justice for in our world, fundamentally, King said, I have decided to stick with love because hate is too great a burden to bear. Now, you're probably not going to have the level of uh, opposition this week that King had in his life. And you're probably not going to have the audience that King had in his life. But there are people in your life that have hurt you. Are you going to give them what they deserve? Or are you going to give them grace? You know, in that conversation, just what you could say to give that person just what they deserve. But will you give them words of grace? When the conflict happens this week, at work or at home, are you going to get even? Or are you going to give what they don't deserve and give them grace? I pray that the grace of God would appear in your life this week.